Right, today we want to finish up chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians as we look at Christian Liberty Part 2. We started to look at some of this last week, first three verses in particular. We saw that being strong in doctrine but failing to be conformed to Christ's image and edifying your brethren is useless knowledge. And this again will be repeated in chapter 13 of love, but uh, it should be kind of obvious that they, these are some people in the Corinthian church who felt that they knew enough uh, that they could go around and tell everybody, uh, kind of evidently poking fun or encouraging them to do things like, why don't you understand these things? And so they were, they were not using their knowledge to help people, minister to people, but to belittle them and get, encourage them to do things they were not ready to do. So Paul says, you got things a little backwards here. Never, he says, never assume you know all you need to know and that you can't learn. Believe that is to prove you don't know all that much to begin with. If you feel like you've got, you've already arrived and you don't have any patience with your brother and sister in Christ. And then our first thing that we need to know is that we are known by God. And that kind of covers those first three verses. Uh, you know, where he just kind of tells everybody to stop and take a breath and Think about what you're doing here. Um, we also saw that while the Bible doesn't spell out everything we are to do and not do, it teaches us the necessary principles to be able to live godly, to lead a godly life. And that's why we try to be careful of trying to force into scriptures the idea that every little thing is spelled out so that there's no differences among people. Our first concern needs to be our heart's motivation and not what is going on in other people's hearts. People who uh, tend to worry about what other people are doing often because they're not worried enough about their own life. And so all this kind of led us to two extremes. Christian liberty is like walking on a sharp ridge with deep gullies on both sides. And by that I mean it's easy to drop off into one or the other. To fall on the one side is legalism, which turns everything into rules, where outward compliance is more important than the heart. As we said, while I have, you know, we all have our convictions, and I might not always agree with everything that somebody else is doing, if I know in their heart they love the Lord and are doing the best that they know how to, I can be a lot more comfortable with them than somebody who I don't I think is just doing whatever they want to do, and don't, don't care about the Lord. Which kind of leads to the second one here. The all other goal is license. Everything is okay. Nobody cares what you do, and ignorance of the Bible is okay, lest your, feet, your freedom get stomped on by what it says. Often in liberal <clears throat> churches, licensed churches, they're licensed by, you know, in other words, you have a license to do it, whatever you want to do. The Serious study of God's word is uh, often not really uh, put forth because uh, you're free to do whatever you want to do. And obviously, in churches that are careful to teach God's word, there would not be a lot of the activity that's being condoned today because clearly the Bible speaks out against it, right? And so, those are some of the problems that we have faced when it comes to Christian liberty. Now, as we deal with chapter 8 and this whole idea of meat offered to idols, one of the commentators that I enjoy comes at this from the idea that, well, the, uh, the 
a church, the, excuse me, the church council in Acts 15, the apostles there made meat offered to idols as off limits. So that all this, Paul is kind of playing a game. That because it's, they were not the meat offered to idols under any circumstances because of the Jerusalem council and some of those dictates there. We'll look at that in just a moment. So therefore, Paul isn't really saved by any of this. It doesn't mean that it's okay to eat uh, meat offered to idols if you understand that there is no such thing as gods. And he's kind of playing a game with them. And it, by the end of the chapter, he basically says that you're all wrong. That you, you shouldn't do that. Well, I disagree with that. I don't see where that's the case at all. And I think there's, a, there's several problems with that approach. Um, and so I just want to deal with that quickly. Turn over to Acts chapter 15. Because you might come up, you know, it's some, maybe it's already crossed your mind. You might hear it or someday you'll think about this when you're reading chapter Acts 15. Because the Jerusalem Council does say that right now we would uh, encourage people not to eat uh, meat offered to idols. Well, what does that mean? Is that a law that they put down in the early church? Don't do it at all. And if so, why does Paul take this approach, right? Well, we find this in Acts 15, verses 28 and 29, where it says, And they, and though they found in him no... Oh, excuse me, in the wrong chapter. Acts 15. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And... One reason why I don't believe these are laws that they're putting down that, you know, that, that can never, no longer be done is because they're calling them burdens. And that which is good and the things that we are to obey should never be considered a burden. But God's law is not a burden, right? <clears throat> Some of the Old Testament laws were burdens. They were things that were done away with. But, but uh, so, so right there I think gives us some insight we'll talk about here in just a second. And what are those things, those restraints? Well, um, find my place again. Verse 29. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. So there it sounds like they're making a law, right? Don't eat those things, meat offered to idols. And from blood, and from that which is strangled, and from sexual immorality, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Well, the problem is, is that I think a case can be made that things that, well, we drink things with blood in it today. It's some, to some degree, uh, removed from the meat, but not always. I think those are Old Testament laws. And in fact, a case can be made that all this are things, uh, Old Testament laws that work to some degree uh, no longer apply to us today, but clearly the apostles are saying that for the time being, we need to uh, abstain from these things, not to offend the Jews. Look back at chapter verse 1, and let's read a few verses here, I think, to show what I'm saying. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here you got some Judaizers, and of course we know this is a big problem, saying that if you are not circumcised, uh, 
keep that part of Moses' law at least, you can't be saved. So they're adding works to the gospel, right? Then uh, verse, look at verse 5. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep, to keep the law of Moses. So they were saying, you've got to do these. If these Jews were, it was very hard for them to let go of some of these Old Testament laws, right? And this was a big problem. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither your fathers nor we were able to bear? So, we know that in one sense, to, to keep one law, you've got to keep the whole law. The law was a system. It was, it was pick and choose. And so, here, here even Peter admits that the law, many of the laws were a burden. They were necessary for a time. There was nothing wrong with them. But he said, now you want us to go back to this idea of living, and it would include meat and what you could eat and, and circumcision. And, and no, Peter's saying, look, all this stuff has been removed, and, and we have freedom from those things. Why do you want to put them back underneath this yoke? And then in verse, you know, as we read here in verse 29, they make then, uh, let's just uh, lay down what you can and cannot do for right now. And I think what we see here is that it was a stopgap decree for the present time. The, the many Jews were struggling mighty with this, and so they were saying, look, the Gentiles here, let's Let's not do anything that is overly offensive to them right now so that we, we just can't get along at all. But it was only meant to be for a time. They say, well, I don't see anything in the text that says that. Well, that's where we think we have to go to some other scriptures to understand that. Um, first of all, you know, later on, Paul has Timothy circumcised so that he doesn't offend the Jews, and yet they said that was the one thing that they, that they in the Jerusalem Council, that no, you can't put those burdens, circumcision un, uh, as a burden upon the, the Gentiles. They were ne never circumcised, and you can't make that an issue. And yet Paul later on tells Timothy to to be circumcised just so that they can minister to these Jews for a, in, a, in a certain area for a certain time. So he would kind of be in violation of Acts 15. And as I said, we eat blood offered, we eat blood in our meat. We don't, it's not something that we ceremonially, as the Jews did, remove it from our meat. So, in a sense, even we're already breaking those commandments. But you might say, and the, and the one that causes some confusion here is abstain from immorality. And clearly we're to, we are to abstain from immorality, right? So, you would think that perhaps they all then are things that are wrong, you know, because they list immorality. Well, John MacArthur, I think, makes a good point here in that he believes that, and, and the reason is you got three of these things that really are not things that we need to do as Gentiles. We're not under law anymore. And so it would make us think that perhaps that immorality thing, a faith of immorality, isn't what a, a universal abstain from immorality, even though obviously we should. And so John MacArthur says that the immorality spoken of there, he believes, means speaks to marriage to close kinfolk that was forbidden by the Old Testament law. In other words, cousins and things like that that aren't necessarily wrong, but was definitely wrong in the Old Covenant. And 
that I think has some merit to it because I think what we see here is that these are things that are okay, uh, but right now we need to, for the sake of the church and growth and unity, we need to let them go for a time being. Now, whether that's the case of immorality or not, you know, it, you know, I, I think that could maybe be argued, but clearly the other three are, and I'm going to give you some examples of this and why I believe that that this is temporary. Uh, when, when they say this is not a permanent ban. First of all, Acts, or Romans 14, where Paul deals with a very similar passage as he does here in our text. For as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak brother person eats only vegetables. And again, it's not just meat off of the idols, but according to the Jewish laws, he's unable to let go of some of the customs. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains have judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So here, it's not the weaker or, or the stronger are kind of pressuring the weak to do something. You've got, you've got both. You've got those who know that it's okay to eat this stuff. Uh, what Telling the people, what, you know, asking what's wrong with you. The weak are saying you shouldn't be doing it at all. So you got this conflict in the church. And so he's speaking to both of them equally. Verse 6. The one who observes the day, observes the honor of the Lord. So here we're talking about the Sabbath, right? These are Jewish laws. Those who cannot let go of the Jewish laws. The one who eats, eats the honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. So, again, I think verse 4 here would, uh, which I didn't even uh, quote that, it'll say, let me, let's, let's, let me, let's turn to Romans 14 here real quickly. I want to read verse 4, because I think what happens is, is that he would be contradicting the Jerusalem Council if you take it to be a ban on everything. Romans chapter 14, verse 4. Verse 3 says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. He will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And so, here... um, you have this idea that Paul is saying that it's open. whether you eat these things or don't eat these things, uh, it doesn't matter. And yet the Jerusalem Council makes it very plain that, well, no, you've got to abstain from these things. And so there you've got a problem already, I think, that makes that if Paul would indicate that these were temporary measures. But now turn over to 1 Corinthians, and, and we'll go to chapter 9 here. And let's read verse 20 and 21 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. So Paul, really in contradiction to the Jerusalem council, says when I was around Jews, I put myself back under the law. That is, in the sense that in the customs. I ate those things that would not offend them. I didn't do things that I knew would offend them. 
But, he says, um, in verse uh, 21, to those outside the law, that is, to the Gentiles who did not keep the law to start with, I became as one outside the law, not going outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. But to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak, and so forth. I, I become all things to all people. Again, not a compromiser, but he's saying the Gentiles were never underneath the law, so when I'm around them, I did not try to impress upon them the need to keep the law, but I lived as they did, because I was ministering to them. And so again, that would contradict, I think, the Jerusalem Council, if, if, if that, if that was to be a law for all time. Paul says, no, I, I, uh, am, am doing whatever I can to minister to people. I'm not, I'm not worried about what I eat and don't eat in, in every case. Look at chapter 10 though, verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered, offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. And so again, he says that it, under certain situations, if you're not going to cause any problems, you're not going to offend anybody, it's okay to eat that meat, which he's already said in chapter 8. So you see, Paul, I think, would be contradicting a Roman or Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, if he ever said it was okay to eat meat offered to idols, and clearly I think he does. And so again, I think that what they're doing, the, the apostles are doing in Acts 15, is just saying, look, let's, let's just everybody take a step back and let's refrain from these things, because th this is where the Jews are really struggling with some of this stuff, and, and, and let, as the Spirit of God gives scripture and things get worked out, Will, you know, give them, in other words, give the Jews a chance to move into the new covenant age, in a sense. I think that's what's going on there. So, the, the whole idea that Paul here is, uh, playing some sort of slide of hand game, I, I think really, uh, just doesn't work well at all. I hope that makes some sense to you. I know it's, it's a lot, just in a short period of time, but in these verses, Paul finishes up his teaching on how the church is to deal with each other in, on issues of the conscience. In other words, the things the Bible does not spell out as right or wrong that we can sometimes differ on. And he's made it clear that just knowing something to be true doesn't mean that those who don't understand what you do can be forced into compliance when it comes to matters of conscience. In other words, let everybody grow at their own rate. And I've seen churches and groups where they live in their, their liberty, and they kind of poke fun of those who don't see what they see. And I think that's a very similar thing to what's going on here. So Paul has told us that our first duty is to love and encourage and build each other up, not conform them perfectly to what, where we have arrived. Since glorifying Christ isn't about, in the kingdom, as, as Romans 14, Paul goes on to say, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It doesn't mean that those things have no place and, and we don't have to worry about any of that, but the kingdom of God is not in 
eating and drinking and, and being under the law as the old covenant about righteousness, peace, and joy, right? It's spiritual. And so, since glorifying Christ isn't about eating and drinking in these things, um, then doing it or not doing it really doesn't mean anything. Why put undue stress on, on that kind of stuff? It's about telling people about Christ. It's about being conformed to Christ. And by that, I mean, I don't just mean living like Christ. But being conformed to Christ is to enjoy Christ, to, to trust in Christ, to, to live uh, and love Him supremely, right? That's what it's all about. It's not, if we get too caught up, as I said last week, in issues, what you're eating and what you're drinking and what you're doing, you start to lose focus on that. So doctrine alone is of no value without love and proper application. Without love, it'll be difficult, if not impossible, to really live out a Christian life because love is the fulfillment of the law. And so, as we look at the remaining verses, let's break it down. Let's just notice four, the four basic truths that he states in this passage that uh, Jeff just read. Um, first of all, he learned that an idol is nothing, and in reality, they don't exist, right? They do exist as a figment of man's imagination, but that's it. And... and and once you really start to think about that, obviously then it changes or dictates how you look at a piece of meat that was used in pagan sacrifice. Because you know that that was all about the ones doing it. It had nothing to do with any real spiritual reality, as it were, right? Um, it's like Isaiah says, though, they, you know, he makes fun of, uh, well, God who Isaiah makes fun of the idolaters when they cut down a tree and use some of it to build a fire and then make a chair from some of it and then they make a carbon image and worship it. How, how silly that is, right? Um, Paul says something similar in Acts 19.26 and you see in here that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God made the hands are not God's. Or, you know, these are the guys who, who are making a living at this, making idols, selling idols. And Paul is saying, no, there's only one God, right? So that's all Paul is saying here. It's a basic fundamental fact that is extremely important to understand, and a lot of people don't. Secondly, while many believe in such gods, there's only one real and true God, right? That's, that's the flip side of this. And this is one reason why anyone who says that all religions are basically the same really have no idea what they're talking about, right? Because the Bible says there's only one truth that's found in Jesus Christ and that the true God can't be known apart from Jesus Christ. Which makes, by necessity, any other approach to God completely wrong and false. Just like Islam, we're not worshiping the same God. There are those who try to say, well... We're all worshiping the God of the Old Testament. Well, no, because now we know that Jesus is that God of the Old Testament, and we can't worship him apart from Jesus. And Islam says that Jesus is just a prophet, right? So it's a false God. Thirdly, then, what we eat cannot, be, cannot make us acceptable to God because he doesn't care. 
Now, when I say that, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek a little bit, because there's ways to dishonor the Lord by what we eat, by what we put into our bodies, how much we eat. It's not like God doesn't care at all about some of these things. But he get, he made all things. He, all the food and drink out there, God created it for us to enjoy and to use to live. So, in that sense, he doesn't care. Why, why do we make such a big deal out of it? And uh, Because it cannot make us acceptable to God. That only happens through Jesus Christ. And so if we are to be careful of getting our focus off the centrality of, we got to be careful that we don't get our focus off the centrality of Christ and the gospel and focus on peripherals. Again, it's not that all these things are don't have any importance, but they can never become that important. Then fourthly, the last point he makes here in verse 12, is that when we sin against each other, we are sinning against Christ. And uh, we see this again in verse 12, where he says, Thus sinning against your brother and wounded his conscience when it is weak. And again, over food, drink, about things that really aren't going to matter one way or another anyway. You're really sinning against Christ, he says. And so he finishes, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And that's where that guy that I'm talking about before says that Paul there says, what he's saying there is because eating meat can make someone stumble, then you should never eat meat at all. And, and, and again, because and Acts 15 had already said that. Well, I don't think Paul's saying that he's not going to ever eat meat again offered to idols. He's saying if uh, it's a general statement, I'm going to live my life to build people up and not to hurt people, not to, to, to drag them down spiritually. And if it means I have to give up some of my rights, so be it. And when we get into chapter 9, he's going to make a fundamental case there where he says, I have given up my right to have a wife and to get support from the churches. It's an example of what he's talking about. But he's not saying that nobody should do that. It's just that that's what he has chosen to do. So again, I, I, I think that Paul is not operating on the assumption that eating meat off of idols is wrong. For, for all people at all times. And so the first thing, having looked at those four main points, the first thing Paul does is point out the truth of the matter. Since false gods aren't really there to begin with, to accept or reject an offering, uh, whoever's bringing it, then offering them something is acting out something that really isn't accomplishing anything, right? There's there's no God, so whatever that person is doing is all happening in their head. They're worshiping a God, no doubt about it. But the problem is that they know God. It's a false God. It's the sin is that they're not worshiping the true God. First Timothy 4, starting in verse 1. Now this is a great passage, so let's just think about it for a minute. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. So whatever he's going to talk about are those who are de- have departed from the faith, not just uh, you know differences Christians have by devoting themselves to the faithful spirits and teaching of demons through this insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. 
who forbid, and here's, here's where they go again, by departing from the faith. They're forbidding marriage and require abstinence from food that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So they have made worshiping God a matter of marriage and not being married, of what you eat, what you don't eat, and all that kind of stuff. And he says, when they do that, they have departed from the faith. And then notice here this principle in verse 4. For everything created by God is good. Now, that man, a fallen man, can take everything created by God and make it evil. Right? Can, can do evil things with it. But for the Christian, everything that God has made on this earth is good if it's received with thanksgiving. And if nothing is to be rejected, nothing is to be rejected if it can be used to serve the Lord. If I can do it with a thankful heart, and my conscience is okay, I use it to glorify God, as Paul's already said, whether they're for you to drink, whatever you do, do all the glory of God. As long as it meets those parameters, we need to be very careful about saying this or that is bad. The good servant of Christ Jesus, a good servant of Christ Jesus, let me go back to verse 5, for it is made holy, it is useful to the serving the Lord by the word of God and prayer, a good servant of Christ Jesus. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So, Timothy, look, what you need to help the people understand what the essence of religion is, what the essence is and make sure they don't get caught up in this idea that what you eat, drink, wear, all these kind of things, everything that God has made uh, for our good, and you, they make it in something bad, like marriage and so forth. So you can see some of the similar things that he said about in First Corinthians. <clears throat> so as we said last week, they understand that the Lord is the only right God, these weaker Christians. They're only right God to worship, but they haven't gotten to the point to realize that he's the only God out there. And that saying magical words over a piece of meat, really, there's no one there listening to that, so there, there's no one there that can do anything to the meat. It, it, it hasn't changed the meat. And so his first concern is to live by his conscience as best as um, has been developed by what he understands at that point. It's kind of like training a small child. I don't want to, I'm not trying to equate a, a weaker brother or sister or a new brother or sister as a, being a child, but it's a similarity here when it comes to our understanding. When you train a small child, you don't let him go into the street and play or play with sharp knives or heavy equipment just by telling him, well, as long, it's safe as long as you use them wisely. Because he's not at the point where he can use those things wisely or stay out of danger in the street, so forth, right? So he's not at that point where you can say, okay, do this, it's okay, just make sure you do it rightly. That's the whole point of growing and maturing, to understand how to use things rightly, right? And so one cannot be expected to live just like a saint who has been around for a number of years, who's strong in the Lord, who has a better grasp of the word, uh, you can't expect someone 
to walk into the church, get saved, and and to live just like you do, and to be just full of faith or joy and all the things that perhaps you're at. Right? That's kind of what Paul is saying. But that doesn't mean that that weaker Christian isn't pleasing the Lord just as much as the stronger Christian, because if as long as he's doing the best he knows to do for the right motives, because he loves the Lord, then he is just as pleasing to the Lord as the weak, the stronger Christian. That's what we have to be careful, because just because you know more doesn't make you a more godly person. The godliness is a matter of the heart. It's taking what I do know and using it properly, uh, not just because I know a lot of doctrine, and that's something sometimes we have to remember. So is meat offered to idols more than just a piece of meat? No. Paul, I think Paul makes that very clear. Is he correct to think that it is more than just a piece of meat, this week of Christian? No, he's not correct in thinking that. But he's not sinning because he hasn't reached that point yet. See what I'm saying? He's living in accordance with what he knows, understands at the time, and that's all the Lord requires of him. Now to put it maybe in a little bit more practical way, if someone comes out of, of an abusive alcoholic home, you can maybe you will raise them, and some of you probably have them, right? It's understandable if their approach to alcohol is different than somebody else's, right? I mean, you wouldn't be surprised. Because, you know, they, it's, it has a bad, left a bad taste in their mouth, but, uh, you know, pun intended. Now, this isn't the same, though, but it, while he might understand that drinking isn't necessarily wrong, because of his background, he really doesn't want to have any part in it. And you can perfectly understand that. And what it would do, uh, any of us, uh, maybe who don't have that problem, to, to try to get him to do it? Why? will be the point. Because not drinking alcohol is not a bad thing to start with, so why would you uh, try to get him to do something he's not ready to do? There'll be no point in it. Now this isn't the same um, uh, in, his, in his, what's going on here in one sense because it's not a matter of ignorance as it is in this chapter, but the principle is the same. I hope you see that. If this guy can't do it in good conscience, then the issue isn't the truth of the matter. See, it's not about knowledge. As much as it is letting him serve the Lord in the area where he is at that time, right? According to his conscience. And again, keep it in mind that such things don't make up, don't get, make up the kingdom of God and don't get you in the kingdom of God. And so they, they they're, they're not the most important issue to start with. So the application um, are important because these things can cause divisions among God's people. Being judgmental of others also misses the point of loving and edifying each other. If I want to build you up in the faith, why would I pressure you on things that really don't matter? Now, this is no excuse for us to remain ignorant of these things. You know, in other words, if you, you know, have, have, you know, have, have these, uh, you know, ideas, convictions about certain things, and you know others don't, 
Well, we ought to be wanting to learn from each other. Perhaps I'm, maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe I need to learn more. But, so it's not an excuse to remain ignorant, but to deal with people where they are. And so when we come to verse 8, it's kind of like a corrective here. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. That's why I said in one sense, God doesn't care. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. Since we, what we eat doesn't matter, if one doesn't eat meat offered to idols, it's not going to hurt me. It's not going to hurt him. And if you do eat it, you're not going to be helped by it, other than you're just going to eat it. Eat it. So why make it a matter of contention? So, again, I think that should be obvious enough. It is only by the lack of moderation that such things can't hurt us. And so, again, it's not like none of this stuff matters at all. But we need to have informed consciousness to remain purposely ignorant because you don't want to change is a sin. That's certainly true. But we leave those things to the Lord. We're not all going to grow in knowledge at the same pace. And we have to be aware of this. Some have backgrounds and experiences that are going to be a hindrance or problem to all their lives unless the Holy Spirit gives them some measure of liberty as we've already talked about. And we've got to be patient with those things. And it is for the very reason that these things don't matter that we can say it is okay for them to think that they are. If, if they, uh, you know, have a hang up on a certain thing, who cares? Let them. It's, it's not going to hurt anything as long as they're doing the best they know to do. So my first job then is I apply it maybe to myself as the pastor of a church. I understand my first job is not to get you to see all the issues as I do, whether I'm right or wrong. It is to help you understand, be able to put things in the proper perspective and live lovingly with those who don't see everything as the other person does. Another way of saying this is to keep Christ before you. That's why I think we preach Christ and Him crucified. It doesn't mean that we don't talk about other things, but we never let those things distract us from the main event, as it were. If we can do that, we can create an environment in which we can go ahead and grow in our understanding at the same time. And a lot of churches are so busy bickering with each other as they stand against this issue, that issue, or this issue, that uh, they uh, can't benefit from the preaching of God's word because they're too busy arguing over things that don't matter in, in one sense. It would be funny if it wasn't so sad. To watch people bounce around from church to church looking for a pastor who believes everything just like they do, only to find out at some point that he doesn't believe in one of their pet doctors, and so off they go look for another church. You know, I've seen that happen so many times over the years, and it's sad, and it's divisive, and it doesn't accomplish anything. So something to keep in mind, the strong Christian keeps us focused on Christ, not necessarily issues. It doesn't mean that every issue is unimportant. Certainly not differences that the Bible doesn't speak to. A weak Christian can be focused on issues that makes a good picture. In other words, the knowledgeable Christian can really be the weak Christian if he's focused on those things and not on edifying the uh, brother or the sister. So in verse 9, Paul gives his application, which again, uh, is pointed to those who know better. Paul is putting the uh, honest, the, the burden upon the one who knows, who should know better. 
And he does it. You see this in verse 9. You see it in Romans 14, too, to some degree. But take care that his, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I notice that in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, he never refers to them as strong, anyone that's strong. Knowledgeable, yes, but doesn't call them strong. In, in chapter 3, remember, he called the whole church more or less cardinal, uh, fleshly. And the, the, the ones who know better aren't acting strong as, you know, strong Christians. And the other ones are weak, so they're not strong. None of them are strong. That's the problem here. So I think it's good to understand because it's easy to get full of yourself and think, well, I know better. I know all these doctrines and I'm strong. Well, you might be strong in knowledge, but are you strong in application? See, that's, that's what Paul is kind of getting at here, I think. In, in, in fact, in Romans 14, if I said he kind of speaks to both of them, uh, both these groups, it's not until chapter 15, verse 1, that he refers to the ones who are strong. He says, we who are strong. Even then, he doesn't say they're strong. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Which is exactly what he's saying here, right, in First Corinthians. If you're strong in the Lord, you're more willing to say, look, I will give up these things to help you because I'm, I'm concerned about you. I'm not concerned about uh, these, uh, these issues, what, my rights. So real growth and maturity, this is something else that a good thing to remember, real growth and maturity is seen not in how well you understand what you can and cannot do, it, it, it's hard. It, it's something that we want to grow in our understanding to know right from wrong, right? But the, the, the real growth and maturity is not in how much, how well you understand it. It's how well you practice what you know. How well you can live with and work with each other and love one another, right? And edify. That's what we're looking for. I mean, I want to see us all strong in doctrine and, and knowing what the Bible teaches, but if we're not practicing that in a way that's beneficial and honoring to the Lord, we're failing. So some of these things were absolutely orthodox, but they were sinning in the way they were living out these truths. And by orthodox, they, they understood doctrine, the correct doctrine. Another way to put this is that it is one thing to be weak in your understanding of godliness, and to think it is a matter of cutting out this or that, that's weak. But it is another thing to be weak in love for Christ and his body, and to be unconcerned for the edification of the others. So, the ones here in chapter 8 who were truly weak were the ones who thought they knew enough and were, were belittling the weaker Christians. They were the worse than the, uh, than the weak, uh, because it was a deliberate thing. Yes, I want us all to grow in our understanding of the Bible and New Covenant living. That's our duty. But that isn't necessarily a difference in whether one is mature in Christ's life. So as I, as I close today, I want us to, and I've already kind of alluded to this, but I want us to emphasize it one more time. So let me say it again. I want us to understand what our duty is. But that isn't necessarily uh, the difference in whether one is mature or Christ-like, right? What I'm saying is that even the weakest of us 
in these matters of understanding can still be the godliest of us all because of why they're doing what they're doing. So if I stand up and I start saying how much I know, but I don't practice it. And then you've got maybe a new Christian who doesn't know much, but he loves the Lord and he's doing the best he can with what he knows. That person is a godly person, more of a godly person, Christ-like, than the one who thinks they know so much. And I think that's an extremely important thing to remember. If this one is abstaining from meat offered idols because he will only do what his conscience will allow him to do. Because he thinks about everything he does, whether it pleases the Lord or not. That person is godly. That is a person we want to look up to, that we want to follow, that can be richly rewarded. The one who is more concerned with his freedom, but cares little about thinking about those these things through, is already behind the curve. The mature Christian isn't the one who goes around telling us what you can and cannot do or the things that we don't, that shouldn't be doing. He's the one who does whatever he can for Christ and for the good of God's children. This is why here and in Romans 14, Paul doesn't try to persuade the weak to just do it because you can. Notice, even here, Paul has not said, look, you guys are wrong about these idols. You need to be eating that meat. Because that wasn't the issue, eating the meat. What you need to understand is what the, who the true God is. You know, understand that first. Not a, he, he doesn't, so he doesn't try to get the weak to change. Because that's not necessary. He speaks to all of us to be patient and loving with each other. Especially the ones who should know better. So in both passages, the more mature Christian that bears the bulk of responsibility to make sure people are built up in the faith, not to conform to their way of thinking. So if you're if you are an encouraging saint to do something that they aren't don't feel comfortable doing, then this applies especially to that particular situation. And you need to stop and repent and say, No, I, I've got to be careful here. So we finished in verses 11 through 13. Notice as Paul sums this up. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You are sinning against the church. You, you, you completely missed the point. And so the strong are responsible to care for the weak because they understand what is important. And it isn't our rights, but it's that Christ be honored in all things. Now, let's, let me close by saying this. In balance, concerning the possibility, because, because what you can get from all this, and it would be a proper reaction, is that, does that mean that the weakest Christian in the church, the church can never rise above the weakest person in the church? Whatever they think is right, we got to do. Whatever they think is wrong, we can't do because they're kind of dictating everything. Right? And that kind of, in Romans 14 and here, you can make that case that if I can't eat meat offered to idols because there's someone in the church who doesn't like it, then, you know, what in the world? He's, he's running the show here. 
Well, first of all, we understand that these are things that you don't do in a way that offends them. So you don't do it around them. That means you can't ever do it, but you're always cautious of who you do it in front of and the effect of what you do. But no, that's not what Paul is saying. That the weakest person decides what is right and wrong for every church. John Calvin says this. He discriminates between the weak and what he calls the tough giants who play the tyrant. In other words, there are those who are weak in all these things, and they try to go around and tell everybody what to do. And if you don't do it, they, you're sinning, and they try to change the course of a church or whatever. And that's weak, but it's weak to a fault. And we don't tolerate that. And that's what Calvin is saying there. He calls them tough giants. <clears throat> these are not being led into sin by weakness, but love to find fault with others and to manipulate others. So we're not being told that the church can never rise above the weakest members. We all, but we always want to make sure that we are for the people of Christ. So we're being told how to be patient and create an environment that encourages growth and edification and love. And I think a brother who is weak in these things will find it much easier to grow if he knows that he is loved and encouraged by people they're not trying to dictate every move he makes. They're all looking down on him because they disagree. They're just trying to get a, a people to love the Lord. And so Paul has no problem rebuking in the clear and important issues, but he knew where to draw the line and let the Spirit do the work. And that's kind of what we got here. These are things that are gray areas that the Bible doesn't expressly talk about. And it's good not only for the leadership of the church to say, look, we're not going to start dictating these the Bible's not clear, but neither should the uh, people in pews either, right? So I think it's a worthy goal to set an example to follow rather than just tell people that they're wrong. Part of teaching is to correct error, that's true, but another way of teaching is for them to watch you. They learn, they, they learn, that, hey, you know, he's doing these things, but he loves the Lord. He, uh, these are things that that uh, are a part of his service to the Lord, and they begin to learn. They begin to realize that, hey, you know, I don't want to make these little things issues because I see people uh, are able to, to do these things and, 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 and do and thrive. So why am I making it such an issue? You see, and they begin to learn by our example. They see that we're full of joy, that we're calm in tribulation, that we're not easily overcome with depression, we're not afraid to witness and to lead others Christians, by example, then they learn by that. And that's an important thing. And so we want to, uh, and this so that the applications in this section are just endless because it makes me stop focusing on myself and to realize that I have a responsibility for those around me. Sometimes it means I can't do every little thing I want to do, and that's okay too. Nothing doesn't ever bother or hurt us. We sometimes say no to ourselves and go to somebody else. Right? So these are some of the things that Paul has been saying. We'll stop there, but we're really going to be dealing with the subject for the next two chapters um, in, in a different way. But uh, so we, we'll, we've got more to say about it. But any questions or comments?